Okay, ladies, we're going to get started on our second lesson in the book of Romans. And so I want you to stop for a minute, and I want you to think about what are the big issues in the world today, maybe in the United States, that really grab and consume our attention. Think about what's in the news right now. Um, I mean, we're looking at the hurricane in Florida. We're looking at the war in Ukraine. We're looking at all the political landscape. I mean, there are, like, big things. Now, now let's bring it down. I want you to think about the things that have grabbed your attention this last week, the things in your life that, that maybe are smaller things, and some of you may be facing really big things. Sometimes things that consume you, that overwhelm you, that are just there, and they're just so difficult because living in this fallen world is like that. Um, we think of all those things, but, but I want to make this point. As big as those things are to us, as big as they seem, in light of eternity, they're really nothing because they won't last forever. And it doesn't mean that they're not big for the here and now, but what it means is, especially as limited human beings and especially as human beings that have a sinful nature, we can take things that, and I'm not saying they're not horrible, but we can fixate on those and we can lose sight of the really great things. And what I want to say is that the one who rules and reigns over all things, the creator, infinite God, who is transcendent, who is all truth and all holiness and all love, the one who created us, the one for whom everything exists, is the great reality. And there's something about fallen nature that has a tendency, not that we in the church do it totally, but certainly our culture that makes the one great issue, God himself, a non-issue in our culture. Think about the news. When, when does anybody talk about God on the news? When is anyone concerned about what's going to happen with God? And he is the one great reality. And where we stand with him in our relationship, which is what we were created for, and what will happen for all eternity, not just for the time on this earth, is the great issue, not only in our own lives, but all those people around us that don't know the Lord. And yet, in light of that, because we have to live in the here and now, think about how consumed we get with everything else. And so my hope for myself and for you is that in this study of Romans, which lays out the true reality of who God is and how we can have a right relationship, where we stand apart from, from Jesus Christ with God under his wrath and how we have a right relationship and then how that plays out in our life. Everything that we're going to be studying this semester, next semester, is the great issue. And so I want to really encourage you in the busyness of life to make time for the great issue, to make time to think about it, to write something down on your lesson, to pray and ask God to show you, to think about it during your day, to think about it when you're worshiping, 
to make that connection so we don't lose sight. Because what the enemy wants is for us to lose sight of the great issue and be consumed by things that are, that are big. I'm not saying they're not. And yet, in light of all eternity, they're not. And so we need to pray for ourselves and each other that we will be able to do this in the book of Romans. So let's start in the first 17 verses. I'm going to read them, and then we're going to talk a little bit about Paul to begin with. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. There's his greeting. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I had among the other Gentiles. I'm obligated both to the Greek and the non-Greek, to the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So we begin with Paul. We talked a little bit about him. Uh, Most of you probably have some background on Paul, but I wanted to give you a few other things to know. Um, You know, his original name was Saul. He was a good Jewish boy named for King Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, like King Saul was. But he was born in Tarsus. Tarsus because his father, though a Jew, was involved in the Roman culture as a Roman citizen. He was born in Tarsus, and Tarsus was a university town. It was the center of Greek culture. It was located in Cilicia, and um, that's on the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. He received a portion of his education in Jerusalem, among the most distinguished doctor of the law, you know, God's law, the Jewish law, a man by the name of Gamaliel, who was the grandson of the most famous rabbi that ever lived, Hillel. And I don't know if I'm saying that right. He studied under him, and so he not only had studied and was knowledgeable in matters of Greek culture and philosophy because of, of being in Tarsus and the university town, but also fully versed in matters of Jewish law. It is said that in those times, there were three great universities in the Greek world. 
one at Athens, one at Alexandria, and one at Tarsus. They were like the Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. So that's where he grew up. So we see how God used his preparation, and someone brought this up, I can't remember um, who it was, in being the one to bring the gospel, making a connection to the Jews with the Old Testament, which he quotes all through the Bible, and I mean the New Testament and in Romans, and yet understanding Greek culture and at times bringing in their philosophers and making arguments with that. Now, he wasn't a whole lot to look at. This is written by someone in the second century. Um, as a second century description of Paul, and this is what it said. He was small of stature, and there's an unconformed report that he was three cubits, which would be about four foot six. Bald, he had crooked legs, a hooked nose, scars all over his face from stonings and beatings. And one writer said, full of friendliness. And uh, I got this from a commentary, and the, the author of the commentary said he would have had to been full of friendliness if he looked like that, or he was scared everybody to death. But, but what were some of his other qualities that made him so effective? He had a biblical mind. He had been steeped in the Word of God, saturated in it. He had a very determined will. We know he was determined and zealous when he was a Jew to stamp out the heretical Christianity, and that same zealousness and determination allowed him to go through so much opposition and keep taking the gospel to places where oftentimes it wasn't received. The other thing that we forget a lot of times about Paul that we see is that he had such a loving heart. You know, we often see him as an evangelist, or we look at Romans, and we see, you know, how great he was at arguing truth. But he had such a heart for God, first of all. He was in love with Jesus Christ. Once he met Jesus, it saturated everything that he did. He had a passion for Jesus, and he had a passion for people. To care about them enough to be obligated and take the gospel, even when he was suffering, you know, death threats and beatings, he loved the Jewish people. He even said, I wish that I, I, I would be willing to be accursed if my people would accept Christ. And, and he had like a pastor's heart. He cared about those. Just like you see him saying, I pray for you all the time. Even the Romans he hadn't met. He would go through and take the gospel, plant a church, and then he would go back and check on them on his way back. And he would send a letter. So a lot of times we don't see Paul that way. But those are three of the things that God used to make him so very effective. Now, he starts off identifying himself as a slave. I, I want to tell you a little bit more about the culture. Um, Paul was very good at connecting with people, and Jesus did this too in his teaching, with the culture. And so he was writing to believers in a culture that had a majority of slaves in the Roman culture. He connects with this and uses this illustration quite a bit. So he starts off and he says, a servant, which is really a bond servant, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Now, that certainly had a Roman connotation, but there's a very specific Jewish connotation for that. A bond servant, in general, was totally dependent on their master for their provision and for their status. Everything in the life of a slave is tied to their master. The Jewish bond slave, if you go back to, and you might want to jot this down, I'm not going to read it. But Exodus 21, 5 and 6, it talks about, you know, oftentimes the Jews would um, have to go into servitude uh, to pay off a debt. And so there would be a certain time when after so long they paid the debt or they would be set free. 
But Exodus gives a provision for if someone was a servant to a master that was the most wonderful master, they provided for them, they did everything, when it was time to be set free, they could choose to remain a bond slave. And if they chose to remain a bond slave, they would take an awl and put a mark through their ear as that symbol. And everyone that saw someone that had chosen to be a bond slave, what did that say about their master? Yes. And so when you get into James, the book of James, it, it's all about the marks of a bond slave. It's all about the marks of those that have chosen to belong to Jesus Christ and how your life are those marks, just like that all was, uh, that mark or that, that hole in the ear. And so Paul identifies himself as the slave of Jesus Christ. And just a little background, in Rome, there were many slaves of prominent wealthy people that had a higher status than the free men in, in the Roman Empire. Many of these slaves, and this is in the Roman culture, they could own property and they would earn money, okay? However, the very lowest slaves in the world, or in, the, in that world, worked in the mines and the quarries, Okay? And they did not get any wages, I guess, or fee. They were the lowest of the low. The only thing they earned from working in the quarry was death. Now, can you think of where Paul used that illustration for the wages of sin? The wages of being a slave to sin is what? So, see, they would connected with that. The very lowest of the slaves, that's all they earned. And so Paul uses this imagery in many different ways throughout, but he identifies himself as the slave of Jesus Christ, okay? Now, let me get over here. So he says um, he was a servant, and, and it's interesting that this is how he sees himself. He had surrendered his right to himself to be a slave to Christ. It's a true picture of who we are as believers, the Bible says you are not your own, you are bought with a price. Price, Therefore glorify God with your body. We exist for God's purposes and for his glory. And the more we see ourselves that way, the more we're able to live a life that's going to bring him glory. A slave is one, uh, a person of insignificance and subservience and submission. But I will say this, being a servant of God is one of the most dignifying titles you can have. Being a servant of God is one of the most dignifying titles you can have. And so I want to give you a truth. The depth of your surrender determines the degree to which God can use you. The depth of your surrender determines the degree to which God can use you. Paul saw himself as a bond slave to Jesus Christ. Here's your next truth that goes with that. Unless you need me to wait. Y'all still writing? Yeah, always ask me to repeat it if I need to. The depth of your surrender determines the degree to which God can use you. Never consider your degree of influence. Focus on the depth of your surrender. Never consider your degree of influence. Focus on the depth of your surrender. Now, think about our culture right now. Think about the term that's really popular, influencers. Everything's about that now. 
Can you see how far off we're getting in our culture? Let me influence. How many followers do I have? How much can I? Like it's all opposite of what God calls us to do. So the application question is this. To what degree do you live a surrendered life to Christ? To what degree do you live a surrendered life to Christ? What are your thoughts, attitudes, choices say about that? What about how you spend your time? All of those really reveal the depth of your surrender. Those who have tasted the very best in their Christian life are those who through surrender have been swept up in the purposes of God. That's what Jesus talked about when he talked about abiding in the vine. Paul also identifies himself not only as a bond slave, but as an apostle, which means sent one. And he was set apart for the gospel of God. Now, as a Pharisee, he had been set apart from something. The Pharisees were very big on setting themselves apart, not only from, you know, the general people, but how they fulfilled the law, and they did all of these details. It was very much about separating themselves from something. But now he was set apart for something, okay? The gospel of God. The gospel, we talked about used six times in these 17 verses, but it's used 60 times in the entire letter. It means good news. Y'all covered that really well. Um, But here's what happens with Paul, and this is what he does. So he starts off in his greeting. He's identifying himself. An apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. I don't know if your translation has like a dash there, but this sets him off. And so he starts talking. Once he says gospel, he starts talking about it. In verse 2, he says, The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Okay, then he starts off and he says, This is in the Holy Scriptures. This is not a new thing. It's not an afterthought. It was in the Old Testament. And, you know, he always identifies the Old Testament to support a lot of truths in the Old Testament support what's happening in the New Testament. And then he keeps going the gospel and he says regarding his son, the gospel is all about Christ. It's all about Christ. And now he gives a concise theology of Christ. And this is all in his greeting. Oh, to have a mind like that. So he says regarding his son as to his human nature was a descendant of David. How important for the Jews to see that. They knew the Messiah came through David. And who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he was human. He was divine. He gives both aspects of who Christ is. And then he talks about him being Lord, which goes along with us being his slaves. We belong to him. So. Do we live our lives like this? Do we think like this? That we belong to him and our purposes are for him. Paul completely identifies himself that way. Okay? I got to move this over here because I got to keep my voice towards this microphone. Okay, now let's look at verse 5. He keeps going about Jesus. And he says, through him and for his namesake, we we received grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Do y'all remember the other verse I told you last week that is like one of my life verses that I said is sort of the thesis of the Bible? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And right here you see a hint of that. 
through him and for his namesake. That's the purpose of, God, of Paul's calling and why he's doing what he's doing. We received grace and apostleship. So, um, once again, it's all about Christ. And, God, and Paul has this call, especially to the Gentiles. He calls people to the obedience that comes from faith. Now, i got to tell you, there's two views on what this phrase means. And different translations say it differently. Okay, so I'm going to give you both of them. The obedience that comes from faith. Um, some people believe that faith is the channel. Salvation comes to us through faith, and obedience is the result. Okay? Some people interpret this that faith is the obedience. The obedience of faith. That faith equals obedience. Those are two, big view, two separate views that many commentators believe. John MacArthur says that obedience and faith are two sides of the salvation coin. You don't have one without the other. Obedience doesn't earn your salvation, but it goes hand in hand with faith. Okay? And so I'm not going to tell you which one it is. I mean, they're both are proved true in the Bible. What it means exactly here, you can hold them both loosely, I think. But the obedience of faith. And it says that um, call people to the obedience. It's a command. It is a command. The gospel is a command to be obeyed. It's not um, to be saved from hell only or to, to get this, that. The gospel is a call to come to the Lord and to live a life of obedience. Because the truth is, when we follow what God says and we obey what he says, that enhances our relationship. That, in turn, gives us the best life possible. You know, God has set up the world to operate according to his laws. And we're going to see that this next week when we talk about the wrath of God being revealed for those that don't obey and turn from God. We're going to see what the results are, and they're not pretty. And so... It's not that you just make a decision and then all of a sudden you got heaven and you're going to have this great life. You make a decision, you get God, and then you live in relationship to God. And because you love him, you obey him. And the result of that may not be everything works out perfect, but you're going to have a relationship that's going to carry you through whatever you need. And then ultimately for all eternity, you have the blessing of who God is. But ultimately, and also you're fulfilling why he made you. He made you for relationship and to bring him glory. So just keep that in mind that that is part of the call. Then he says, to all in Rome, and you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So immediately he is talking about the, the, the people that, that know the Lord, the Christians there are called. And we're going to see that term through Romans. But, but at the very beginning, I, I have to stop right here and I'm just going to ask you. Have you obeyed what you know about the gospel? Have you repented of your sin and surrendered your life to Christ, trusting him alone to be your substitute? And are you living a life that demonstrates this in obedience because you love him? That's what the call is to. Examine yourself and ask God make it clear to you where you stand with him. You do not want to be deceived. As we delve into this beautiful picture of the truths of all that God has done, you want to see the truth about yourself in light of that, okay? 
And when Paul says grace and peace, grace is a Greek word, charis. So he's speaking to the, to the Greeks. Peace is shalom, which was the Jewish word. So immediately he's bringing them all together. And he thanked God in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. So I want to ask you, how are you known? The Roman church was known for their faith throughout the world. So how are you known and for what are you known? Are you known for your looks, your education, your success at work, your children, your home, your car, your clothes, great decorator? You always get the job done. You do everything to the interview. Are you known for those things? Are you known as a woman of great faith? How do you think Crossgate is known as a church? Are we known as a church of great faith? I think it's very significant that this Roman church was known throughout the world for their faith. And once again, it reminds us what is really important. What is really important in our lives? Now, look at 9 through 13, and there's a lesson for us in this. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness, how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times, which that's convicting right there how much he's praying for them. However, I want you to notice this. I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I may have, this is why I wanted to come, in order that I may have a harvest among you just as I had among the other Gentiles. He gives little parentheses in there. Paul's good about doing that. But I want you to think about something. When you think something is God's will for your life, whether it's in Scripture or it appears that he's opened that door, and you're stepping into it, and it's not working out, how do you respond? Whether it's in service or ministry or something you want to accomplish, and the door's not opening, how do you respond? Surely God wanted him to come to Rome. Surely God would want him to speak to the church, right? But he said the door had not been opened, and he had prayed, and he was waiting for the Lord to open that door. Um, our plans and desires, here's the truth, our plans and desires must be submitted to God in prayer, trusting his will for all that we do. And here's what we see, especially, I think, a lot of times on the religious scene in the church today. We see people that are really, and, and, and sometimes God brings great fruit, and, it, and it's not because of this, but sometimes it is. We see people, and I've been in the church long enough to hear the church growth seminars and how we're going to get more people, and I'm not saying there's not a place for that. However, if you think about how Jesus operated, he didn't preach in big, giant venues. He got 12 unknown people that he privately taught. Later on, certainly Peter preached in some bigger things, but I'm saying and God added the increase. There were times that God added an increase. But Jesus didn't always go to the biggest platform to make something happen. 
He was faithful to what God had. Jesus always submitted himself. He always went away and prayed. And he, he said, you know, sought the Lord about what was to happen. He didn't try to step in and make something happen. I mean, as a matter of fact, if I just, just came to me. If you think about his temptations, that's really what they were all about. You make it happen. I mean, obviously, this is where you're going, so let's get there. And so how often, even when God tells us something and the door closes, do we still keep banging our hand on that door or trying to make something happen instead of waiting, praying, and trusting God? And the other thing was he was faithful where he was. If, when he couldn't get to Rome to preach the gospel, he preached the gospel where he was. And so, so often, God is just looking for us to be faithful where we are. And if we ever feel like we're obscure or we're not having a great influence, just remember that Christ himself, he, he was submissive to the Lord, and God used that and multiplied that in other ways. And Paul talks about having an obligation, you know. Yes, he had an obligation to all people, but he couldn't get to Rome yet. And so he preached God where he was, the gospel. Um, God, he also said, I want to come to you so I can give you some encouragement. And he said, and so that we could be in, encourage one another. And here's another point that I want to make. God, here's the truth. God's plan is for believers to encourage each other by their faith. God's plan is for believers to encourage each other by their faith. So who encourages you spiritually? Do you have someone in your life that encourages you spiritually and to whom are you giving spiritual encouragement? We have a responsibility to grow and mature in our faith, not only for God's glory, but so that we can strengthen and encourage others. None of us is to be only a taker. None of us is, on, is to be only a taker. The kind of person that always needs someone else to listen to us, Always need someone to encourage us. Always need someone to teach us because we're not willing to do the hard work to mature. Boy, that was a hard word. But we're not called to do that. Nor, here's the other side of the coin, nor are we to be only givers. The people that never ask for help, that never go to someone else, that keep all their business to themselves because they don't want to put it out there. Pride keeps them from receiving. Both are not what God's plans are. I want to make this point because a lot of people get off on this uh, in their thinking. The more mature in the faith should never think that they are above learning or being encouraged by the less mature. Nor should the less mature think that they have nothing to offer to the more mature. God has put us all in the body to encourage one another. And, you know, I stand up here. Because teaching is my thing, and I teach the Word of God. But just because I'm standing up here doesn't mean that when you show up for class, that is not encouragement to me, even if you don't say a word. Your presence is an encouragement to other people in the body of Christ. So I just want you to know that not just in here, in your life group, in other places, and, and just being friendly or speaking a word or sharing what's in your life when we all connect that way, there is an encouragement in that. You don't always have to be the person of wisdom. There's just an encouragement in connecting or allowing someone to be a part of your life and pray for you and then later on seeing the results of that. 
strengthens their faith. But if you're so prideful either way that you don't ever share anything or you're so self-consumed that you never see other people's needs and step into that, then you miss out on that. There needs to be a balance is all I'm saying because that's what God has put us here. And here's another truth Paul teaches us. If you're saved, you're obligated to share the gospel. If you're saved, you're obligated. That means you're in debt to other people to share the gospel. You're not in... You're, you're in debt to them, but you're also in debt to the Lord. And think about it this way. I have a co-worker whose young son last year was diagnosed with um, bone cancer, 15. Uh, he was a student that tutored for me, and they've just moved to try to get some treatment for his son, and he just sent a text out saying that he's, that he's had a relapse, and they're just talking about comfort care. So he's 15. And he said, if anybody has any ideas or knows of anything, please let us know because they're desperate for something. So let's say I get that text, and I'm thinking, I don't know anything about anybody that does that kind of cancer treatment, but I can pray. Let's say that I get that text, and, and I know a cure. But I'm like, oh, I'm so tired. I'm so busy at work. i gotta, I got to prepare my lesson. And I don't share that with him. What, do, what would you think about me? If I had a cure for his son's cancer and I didn't want to take time or I was like, ah, oh, he's all the way in Colorado. I don't need to bother with that. What would, you, what would that say about me? Yeah, I'm selfish. I'm self-centered. And, and, and how, how much more? Do I need to make the rest of that? How much more, ladies? We, we get it when it's cancer, but how much more? We're talking eternity burning in hell. So Paul recognized that obligation. My, heart, my hope for myself and us is that we recognize that obligation as we delve into the gospel. And I want you to keep that in the back of your mind, that it's not just for us to consume it on ourselves. Yes, there's a place for us to gaze at it and be moved by it, but it's not just for us. So, so do you live like you're obligated? Okay. The gospel is the great equalizer because everybody is lost without it. And if you think, do y'all know who Jesus first revealed himself as Messiah? To whom he first revealed himself? Do you know who it was? It was the Samaritan woman at the well. The hated Samaritans, a woman who'd been cast aside by men after men. That's who he first revealed himself. So what does that tell you? What does that tell you about how Jesus sees what his mission was and who he came for? So now, um, let's go to the theme, the thesis. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So, this tells us, as we look at the gospel, as Paul approached it, that he was obligated. We already saw he was obligated. Number two, he was eager. He already said that. I'm he, he was eager to come to them. I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you. So he was obligated. Paul was eager, and Paul was not ashamed. Does that describe you? Obligated, eager, and not ashamed. So he says, I'm obligated. Uh, I'm not ashamed because it's the power of God for salvation. Why do we need salvation? Okay, he talks about salvation. Salvation from what? 
If I ask y'all that, what would you say? You're on the right track. We got to go back further. Death and hell result. Sin. What do we need salvation from? Why do we need to be saved? Yes. And we're going to be talking about it in the next section. There's a clue. What is it that sends us to hell besides the causes of sin, but what comes from that? God's wrath. We have to be saved from the wrath of God. Okay? So this is where we're going to start looking at some deeper terms about the Lord because he brings this up. Okay, this is all going to be wrapped up together. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, he says, the gospel has power. Now, there's a place for personal testimony. How, and the more your testimony is wrapped up in the gospel, the more powerful it is. But the reality is not just what we say in the gospel, but what happened in the gospel. What really happened is what has the power to save us. Christ became our substitute to save us from the wrath of God. And so up here I have a few things, okay? God is holy. I want to talk about this for just a second. God is holy, which means he is separate, he is distinct. Yes, he's morally pure, but more than that, he is other. He is, he is other from us. He's absolute perfection and beauty, okay? When his holiness is revealed, we call it his glory, all right? So we have God is holy, and that makes up a part of all of his other attributes, okay? And it says here, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, okay? Righteousness is used 35 times in Romans. I have a whole book from a guy that says that's a theme of Romans, the righteousness of God, okay? So I want us to think about this. I want to tell you that the word righteous in Romans are in the Bible, in the New Testament, and the word justice come from the same root word. They mean the same thing. The Greek word is dikaiosune, if I said that right, dikaiosune. It means the same thing. So when you see righteousness and justice and righteous and just, they mean the same thing. They're all part of God, who he is. They explain righteousness as God's proper standards, God's actions expressed in the covenants. A person that lives in accord with God's standards, being in proper relationship with God because you line up with who he is. God himself defines righteousness and justice. That's why it's so bad when people are like, well, I just don't know that God's just. Like, you define justice? We have a limited view of justice. We don't understand everything that he does, but God defines. He is the standard. That's who he is. And so because he is holy and righteous and just, when we sin, we offend that. And because he's just, he has to pour his wrath out on us. Okay? So I want to make that point because this is all part of why we need the gospel, okay? So righteousness and justice is what is deemed right by God and approved by him. It's what conforms to his own being. We can try to understand that from Scripture, but know that we can't fully understand everything that's righteous and just. We do our best according to Scripture, but God himself defines that in ways that sometimes we don't fully understand, okay? Okay? And so, 
Then, let me go on to a few other points that I want to bring out about that. Let me get over here. All right. The gospel is mainly the good news that God himself has rescued us from the wrath of God. God would not be just if he did not pour out wrath on sin. He would not be righteous if he just said, oh, well, it's not a big deal. He would not be holy if he did that. So we have the righteousness of God because it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So we see the righteousness of God, and then we see the second part in verse 17 where he says, a righteousness that is from faith, from first to last, the righteous will live by faith. That's, that's those that belong to God. So we see both God's righteousness and those that belong to him having a righteousness and how they live. Okay? So we see both of those. The fact that God just didn't say, oh, look at our sin. Oh, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to hold you accountable for your sin. He didn't do that. That shows us that he is righteous. Sin had to be paid for so he could give us right standing. The cross did that. The gospel is the good news that God has upheld his justice by becoming our substitute. Okay, so we start looking at the layers of God's character and why it was necessary for Jesus to come. A lot of people just accept that, but they don't really delve into the why and there's power in that when you understand that God himself chose to become our substitute. That is like a stunning thought, okay? So what Paul has given us is this argument that he's going to unfold more fully. That, that uh, And I want to make this point. I didn't have this in my notes, but I want to make this point. This quote, did the quote that he says the righteous, or some may say the just will live by faith or by their faith in different ways, it comes from Habakkuk, okay? Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets. And in the book of Habakkuk, and it, and it seems kind of off the wall in a way, and some people say that, that Paul would use, did he just pull this out of context and stick it here to make the point that the righteous will live by faith? Because we're going we're gonna to see how um, our justification, when God gives us his righteousness, it comes through faith. That's the channel. But when you look at the book of Habakkuk, what it's really about is God's wrath being poured out on the nation for their sin. And so it's very appropriate that in, in the context of understanding the gospel, that God has a righteousness that we're going to see in the next section, we have violated that, we have chosen, and therefore he owes us wrath, that it is through his own righteousness that he upholds that. And that's where we see that in Habakkuk, that the righteous will live by faith in the context of wrath and then ultimately God rescuing. So if you've never read Habakkuk, it's maybe just three chapters, I'm not sure, but it's a lot of bad news. And then it's this beautiful testimony of Habakkuk saying, nevertheless, no matter what happens, I'm going to rejoice in God, my Savior. And, and it's really where we need to land as we keep the big picture in our mind. As we don't get bogged down into the fact that there's no sheep in the pen. And, you know, not that that's not going to be overwhelming. But when our feet are firmly planted on who we are in Christ and what God has done for us and what our hope is, then whatever comes, it gives us great strength. And I want you to notice this, too, that 
we a lot of times think the gospel is for the unsaved only. We have a tendency, let's give out the gospel to the unsaved. Who was Paul writing to? Yes, because the gospel is for us, y'all. As we understand all that God has done and what he's done and what he's promised, it is what drives us. It should be what drives us day in and day out with the choices that we make and and how we stand firm in the good times and the bad times and what we spend our time on. The gospel should be the driving force and influence of our lives. It, not should, it shouldn't just be this thing over here that happened to us once when we made a decision and then we walk around this, oh, I really should give out the gospel. But I'm not even sure what the gospel is, okay? So hopefully after we get through Romans, you're going to be so stunned by all of this that you're going to want to talk about it and you're going to find it to be a strength in your life. Um, the beauty of meditating on who God is and understanding reality is it undergirds everything of who you are. And then when you do share things with people, like if, if you've dug deep into all of this, then it's not so hard to your children or someone else to give the simple part. You don't have to go into all the things we're going to wrestle with. I don't fully get everything that I'm going to be teaching you in here, but I enjoy wrestling with it. Because it moves my heart. And even Sunday, and, and this is a tip. Um, Sunday we were singing the great exchange, that song, or the beautiful exchange. And I was, I was thinking, when I sing worship songs a lot of times, I think about the lyrics, especially in light of what God's teaching me. And, and, and that's, very, that's very good to do instead of just singing them. But it's talking about that exchange, which is exactly what we're going to see in Romans we give our sin and we get his righteousness. And then it's interesting as he talks about what happens, and then there's that whole chorus that's, holy are you, Lord. And, and it kind of seems like that's just another thing to worship God. But do you see the connection here? And I don't know if that was in the mind of who wrote it. You know, they don't make that connection in the song. But here it is. You know, you're talking about what he did, and then you get the holiness of God. So why? We had to have an exchange to be made right with God. God couldn't just say, oh, it's no big deal. And, and so it kind of, it, for me, it added a whole other level to my worship as I was thinking on Romans and what we're seeing about God's righteousness and how he's made a way. And we're going to really delve into that, especially as we start digging into the wrath of God. And I don't have this on your homework, but I want you to think of songs that we sing, worship songs that we sing this week about the wrath of God, okay? And so bring to me any worship songs that, does anything come to your mind right now that we sing about the wrath of God? Tula should know something. Well, Lisa Walker couldn't think of one, so if you can think of one, a current song, now you might go back to some old hymns because there are some verses written about the wrath of God then. And so think about that and just think about what that means, especially in light of what we're going to be looking why is important that we dwell on the wrath of God and we don't? And could that play a part in why the church is so weak today? I don't know. I'm just throwing some questions out there. So, you know, we don't, we don't like the bad part, but you, you totally don't appreciate the good parts. Why don't use this thing? It moves. Um, if you don't see the whole picture, why do you need Jesus in your heart? You know, we, we, we tell that to kids or we say that in a simple way. And certainly we're not going to fully go into all these things with children. But 
neither should we be children, ladies. We, sh- we should really delve into the reality of what the cross means and the gospel. And that's why it's like a jewel. And you look at all these different facets of it, and maybe you can't hold it all in your head at once, but there's great value in looking at the different facets at different times. So anyway, um, hopefully in the weeks to come, as I said earlier, our hearts are going to be stirred, and we're going to be stunned, and we're going to live differently in light of what we see of what God has done. So anybody have a question or a comment before I close this out in prayer? Anything that um, I need to do differently that would be helpful to y'all? No, I'm like, uh, stop, stop. Stop me and tell me, like, if, if I'm, you're writing something down, because I'm, I'm thinking where I'm going, so just say, wait a minute, can you repeat that? Debbie's good at doing that, so I know she'll do it. She doesn't mind doing it. I don't mind it at all. As long as I have notes, I can remember where I'm going. All right. Thank you all for being here. I'll let you out a little early. You're welcome to stay and visit. You know, we're not timing it out perfectly, so um, y'all can stay and visit if you want. Go get kids if you need to, and I hope you have an awesome week as we Just rejoice in the wrath of God and the sin of man and how we're all under condemnation. We're going to be there for a few weeks, ladies. So uh, until we get to 321 and then we get to but now. And then that's like one of the best things in the whole book of Romans, but now. So let me just pray. God, we just thank you so much um, that you have not left us adrift without truth to help anchor us. Lord, I pray that you would anchor our souls, our hearts, and our minds in who you are, that we would be women that stand firm, that are not blown about by every wind of change, that, God, we would be known for our faith, that we would be known like Paul, that we would be women who are obligated and passionate for other salvation, and that we would be eager to share the gospel, Lord. Help us to do that. We can't do it apart from your spirit, so I pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen.